Welcome to the 127 on the Mic podcast. This message was recorded by our college pastor, John Davison, as we walk through the book of Hebrews. We hope you enjoy. All right, Hebrews chapter one, we got through like 1B or 2B last time. We're just gonna keep going on there. When, when we look at these verses, uh, the, just the, the solid thing that we threw out last week is that God is a speaking God. Verse one, long ago, God spoke to the fathers, to the prophets, at different times and in different ways. Verse two, in these last days, he has spoken to us by the son. And this is important because Hebrews 8, 13 says this, by saying a new covenant, he's speaking in a new way, he has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. What Jesus has done is a new thing. And in that new thing, we don't need anything else. The words of the previous era that we got to see are yes, authoritative, the Old Testament is important, the Old Testament is of high value, the Old Testament is God's word, but the new covenant found in the New Testament basically fulfills all of those things in a new way. And that's why you get to to chapter two, verse one, for this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. This is why we need to kind of zoom in And pay attention, this is why the author of Hebrews says, you need to hear this. And then we think about, well, what's the audience? The audience are Jewish Christians who have been like faithful to the old law, to the Old Testament, and then Jesus comes along and just wrecks all of that. So they're trying to figure out kind of what's the combination here? What's the balance here? How do I go about life that was once just filled with all these laws in the Old Testament and now live out in the way that Jesus has modeled or displayed for me to live out. And so verse two, once again, in these last days, just a reminder, we're in the last days. Anything after Jesus, the last days, he can come back whenever he wants to. We're in the last days. He has spoken to us by his son. This is a emphatic by his son right here because Old Testament Israel would understand what was being said there because of a couple verses. We go to Exodus 4, 22. And you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. So you know the story. Moses is, is about to go before Pharaoh, and he's, he's scared. He's like, send somebody else. I have a stuttering problem. Um, what, what's going to happen here? And, and God finally gets to the point. He goes, hey, you're going to go before him. He's not going to listen, but this is what I need you to tell him anyway. You need to let my people go because that's my firstborn son, and I need them to come out into the wilderness and worship me, but you're not gonna let it, let it go. You're not gonna let them go, and so I'm gonna go ahead and take your firstborn son from you. That's God's promise from even before the plagues to Pharaoh, and why is that important? Sonship is important. Jesus, for, for him to go, Israel, you are my firstborn son. It put them in a place more so than probably we understand in our culture of what being a son actually means there. It is of high value. The blessing is poured out on you. You get all the benefits of the father and you don't have to do anything for that. You can be an ultimate moron running around. You can defame your dad's name. You can do all that stuff. And based off of their law and their tradition, you still got the blessings just because of who you were, just because of what we call is just like a positional blessing, just because you're a son and a firstborn, you get all of that. Like nowadays in our culture, like I think parents will threaten your inheritance. Act a fool again, it's gone. I'll donate it to Samaritan's Purse. And, and so you, you kind of sit in that, but back then this wasn't a thing. And so as he's speaking to these Jewish Christians, they would understand the idea of the son is of 
high value is a really big thing. And so the emphatic, in the last days, he has spoken by the Son. And then that echoes in the Davidic promises where God is speaking to King David in 2 Samuel 7. He says this blessing to him through Saul. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the blows of mortals. He's going, hey, I'm the father. He is my son. And then the author just implicitly implies, I think those are the same word, implies that Jesus is the true Israel. He's taking the place of the son. So it's no longer Israel is my first son. Now we've gotten to the point of the true son. And he is the no longer the son David who is a king. Now he is the true king. And then as it echoes through the rest of the book, really, but of course the next two verses, he highlights that this sonship kind of transcends, it goes above these categories because he's not just like the ending son, he's not just the ending king, he is the unique eternal son of God. He is the unique king, he is the one that shares the nature with God. And so this is why we have to pay attention to this. And, and I mentioned this um, last week, if you were here, if you're not here, we put up this chart uh, that I think is back there. Um, and this is why. So if you go to this chiasm that happens in this verse, he has spoken to us by his son is A, and it connects to this. The reason that speaking through the son is so important, because the son, he becomes superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs, but there's a reason for that. Now, we understand he's the son of God, but it, it goes beyond this idea. His sonship is more than just a place for him. And they're going to begin to understand this. The author is going, hey, readers, I need you to grab this idea that, that if you could see the majesty of Jesus as the son, then you'll begin to understand that he is supreme over everything. Now, they go to angels here, but he's just supreme over everything in the universe. So Jesus, as the son, is appointed by God as heir of all things. In the, in the Old Testament, that language is typically used when we talk about being an heir, uh, is used talking about in reference to them inheriting the land of Canaan, which is promised to Israel as an inheritance. That's Deuteronomy 4. If you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 12, 9, uh, Joshua chapter 11, verse 23. All of those echo there. But the son here being the heir of all things echoes again the promise that God gave to David back then. This is Psalm 2, 8. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. He's, he's talking to, to, to David. He's like, I need you to understand this, that all of this one day is going to be yours. The son is the heir because he is the Davidic king. He's the fulfillment of all of the covenant promises that we see in the Old Testament. And this promise that God makes to David that, that you will never not have someone from your line sitting on the throne ultimately comes to life here because of the position of Jesus. He becomes the ultimate heir. He rules over all things. And then this commences with his location sitting at God's right hand, but we also see the rule of the son. He's, he's there because he is the son, but he rules as the son. And in that, it, it basically just highlights like he's the savior. He's the, he's the Messiah. He's the king. He's the one through whom all of the promises of Israel are coming to life. And as the son of David, this is kind of an important thing for us to understand theologically, as the son of David, he's what? It's pretty simple. I'm throwing a curveball at you. He's a human. 
As, as the son of David, he's a human being on this planet. But he's more than a human being, right? I mean, you, you got to understand his God nature. Why? Because in the last days, he's spoken to us by the son. He appointed him heir to all things. And what? Made the universe through him. The entire cosmos through him. And so he's a son, but he has a different type of rule because God makes the universe through him. And a lot of times when you see the word universe, even in scripture, it's like this temporal um, kind of idea. But here it designates, it designates the world that God has made. And he's saying that in that, Jesus is the author of all creation. This is John 1.3. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing that was created that has been created. So, so he gets to... He gets to not only wear that idea of being the son, but also the, also the author of creation. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. This is positional. We got to understand this. Colossians 1, 16. We challenged our Bible study leaders earlier to challenge you to memorize this poem in Colossians 1. So many strong verses in here. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and what? For him. And so you hear that he's the author of creation. And so you read this. In the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus. God has appointed him the heir of all things. Why? Because he made the universe, the entirety of the cosmos through him. But we have to do a little theological connection here on what the author of Hebrews is doing. Because if Jesus is the agent of creation and all things are made through him, why is this highlighted in this way? Like, why is this important to them? Because these are, these are Old Testament people. These are Jewish people who, who have founded most of their belief system on the Old Testament law. And the Old Testament law was given in a unique way. And what the author does in a, in a pretty remarkable way here with his language is he begins to draw upon the idea of wisdom connected to the idea of creation. And this would ring really loudly for them because in the Old Testament, the Lord created the world through, and a lot of times we're going to say Jesus is the answer, and it is the right answer there. But the, the Lord creates the entire world through wisdom. Look at these verses, Proverbs 3, 19. The Lord founded the earth by wisdom and established the heavens by understanding. Just the start. And then in Proverbs verse 8, this isn't on there, but I need you to see this. Just flip over in your Bible if you can find Proverbs. Just, just take your Bible, open it up in the middle. You're probably going to have to go a little bit to the right. And go to Proverbs verse eight, or chapter 8. I'll beat you to it. But the, the, the title of that is Wisdom's Appeal. And this is King Solomon who asked the Lord for wisdom, and he granted it to him. We would say he's the wisest man that, that ever lived, but I'm going to let Jesus take that title for just a second. Go into verse 22. Okay, this is wisdom speaking here. This is wisdom's appeal to us. Verse 22, the Lord acquired me at the beginning of his creation. Before his works of long ago, I was formed before ancient times from the beginning, before the earth began. I was born when there was no watery depths and no springs filled with water. Before the mountains were established prior to the hills, I was given birth. 
Before he made the land, the fields, or the first soil of the earth, I was there when he established the heavens. When he laid out the horizon on the surface of the ocean, when he placed the skies above, when the fountains of the ocean gushed out, when he set a limit for the sea so that the waters would not violate his command, when he laid out the foundations of the earth, I was a skilled craftsman beside him. I was his delight every day, always rejoicing before him. I was rejoicing in his inhabited world, delighting in the children of Adam. And you look at that and you go, that's just Jesus. And I would go, yeah, that's a, that's a great leap to make. And I believe that you're right in that, except for the fact that this, Proverbs says this is just wisdom speaking. This is wisdom's appeal. And so we can connect these two and go in, wisdom feels a lot like a person. And when I read about this person, it makes me think a lot about Jesus. Yeah, because the Lord found the earth on wisdom. He established the heavens with understanding. We keep going, Psalm 104, verse 24. How countless are your works, Lord. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. He, he made them in wisdom. Jeremiah 10, 12. He made the earth by his power, established the world by his wisdom, and spread out the heavens by his understanding in wisdom. And I love this because you would instantly go, Jesus is greater than wisdom. But based off of these verses, you need to understand that wisdom now becomes a personification where Jesus is saying, I am wisdom. The son existed as a person before the world was formed. And we can easily like, fail to see how astounding this idea is that's being presented. Because what they're looking at right now, these, these Jewish Christians, is this understanding that Jesus, maybe 10, 20 years ago, was put to death on a cross. Some of us saw it. Some of the people that were reading this letter were a part of it. Some of their relatives were there in person, and they're telling them that. I'm just making some assumptions here that are pretty logical assumptions. And they're going to go, this man that has died is the agent of creation. And my understanding is that the agent of creation is wisdom. And so you're telling me that he is wisdom. And then in that, it changes the way that they think. And this, the book really kind of pushes this this way. But it's just a sweet understanding for them to, un, to, to grasp that the Old Testament was full of prophets and priests and kings and they spoke in so many different ways in so many situations, but now the son has spoke and he has finally spoke and it is of high value to me because if he spoke now and he's the agent of creation and the world was founded on wisdom, then he spoke then. And all of this is his word. And it, it kind of rattles their brains and he takes them to verse three. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so verse three takes this idea and it unpacks it a little bit farther, the nature and the supremacy of the son and putting Christ in his right place. I mean, first he just says the author is like, hey, the son and God, they're the same. The son is the representation, the radiance, the exact expression of God in his nature. Second, the son's role is what? He is sustaining all things by his powerful word. His word sustains the cosmos. Not only is he creator, but he holds it all together. And then third, and really kind of the most crucial for the argument that echoes um, all throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews, is that the son's reign 
is where? At God's right hand. He reigns and rules at God's right hand, and he's able to sit at God's right hand because of something we mentioned last time, because his work is done. He has fully cleansed the, the, the payment for sin. He's taken on the wrath of God. We've been cleansed in that. And so Hebrews echoes this really loudly, but it's not alone in expressing these sentiments about God. I mean, John's gospel is really actually pretty kind of clear on this. John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He is the word from the beginning. And then it continues from there. John 1, 3, all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Not only is he the word, he is the what? Creator of all of these things. And then John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God. The one and only son who is himself God is at the father's side, is what we're reading here. He has revealed him. So he's, he's the word, he, he's sustaining, he's holding all of these things together. But if God is invisible, and in a sense, he's inaccessible to us, then Jesus explains to all humans who God is, what he looks like, what's his character. He, he reveals that to him. Now for us, we're, you know, 2,000 years past this point, we're going, well, yeah, like I fully understand this. But for Jewish, New Testament, early New Testament Christians, again, this is, is beautiful and kind of mind-blowing to them. They would understand, yeah, no one has seen God. Oh, but that guy fully revealed God to us? Paul in Colossians celebrates this same truth. Again, back to Colossians 1. He's the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He does the same thing in Philippians in, in 2.6, that he was in the form of God. So Paul believes this. And so after affirming that Jesus reflects God fully, then he returns, the author of Hebrews returns to the idea that the world was created or that the son was involved in the role of creating the world. He's not only the one through whom the world was made, but he also sustains the universe by his powerful word. Back to Colossians verse, uh, chapter one, verse 17. And by him, all things hold together. And, and we talked about this. We talked about this when we were talking about prayer this morning. Like, your existence is a common grace of God that is held together by Jesus' sustaining word. All of that, your breath that you just took, your brain that somehow commanded you to take that breath, your heart that beats that air-soaked blood through the rest of your body without you saying to do anything is the common grace of God sustaining part of the cosmos, and you're just this little dot of all of it. That's how powerful he is. And the author is putting him in this right position. All things are held together by him. Not only did he create the world through Jesus, but he also continues just to sustain or upheld all of it through Jesus. The, the author of Hebrews doesn't allow us to have some sort of uh, deistic notion of creation. The universe is sustained by the personal and the powerful word of Jesus so that the created world is dependent on his will for us to function, on his will for us to just exist. We have to shift our thinking into that place. He, he begins to, he really begins to like reiterate the idea that the son reigns over all things, which becomes an, an echo for the rest of the book of Hebrews. 
because the son's rule begins like after he, what, makes purification for our sins. After making purification for our sins, he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the readers would understand purification for sins, their Old Testament. He understands that. They understand Levitical sacrifice. Chapter 7, really through chapter 10, begins to talk about this a whole lot. But the son's once and for all sacrifice for us cleanses all of our sins to for those who would believe in him. And the cool part about this promise that they begin to understand is like it's not a you need to come to him all the time to be purified. Because in his purification for sins, what did he do? He left. The priest, Old Testament, would make that sacrifice. He would come out, and then he knew that he had to begin to prepare to head back in eventually. He had to begin to do things. They're gathering animals, doing all this stuff to go back in and make the sacrifice. Jesus is out. And he goes and he sits at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because the the purification of sins, the sacrifice that he made is finished. And he gets to take his rightful place at the right hand of God. The sacrifice is done and it never has to be made again. Why the right hand? One of our leaders made the joke that we don't know if God has a left hand or not. It's never talked about. Um, Thanks for that test. But the, the right hand is important. If you care about this, take these notes. The right hand signifies power. Exodus 15, 6. The right hand signifies protection. Uh, Psalm 16, 8. Psalm 73, 23. Isaiah 41, 10 is a good one. That's protection. The right hand shows us triumph over our enemies. Psalm 20, verse 6. Psalm 21, verse 8. I mean, it, it, it signifies that he's the same identity as God. In preparing for this, uh, I read the divinity of Christ, and Richard Balcom says this, the potent imagery of sitting on the cosmic throne has only one attested significance. It indicates his participation in the unique sovereignty of God over the world. One more time, the potent imagery of sitting on the cosmic throne has only one attested significance. It indicates Christ's participation in the unique Sovereignty of God over the world. And this pushes us into Hebrews 1 verse 4. He sits at the right hand and then this. So he became superior to the angels just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Verse 4 is tied really closely to verse 3. The son who's seated at God's right hand and he rules the world as the Messiah. He rules the world as the Lord. He's become greater than the angels. And so clearly, I think the author is not making the argument and and the readers didn't have to understand that Jesus, the son of God, was greater than the angels. I think they would get that. We understand Jesus, the son of God, is greater than the angels. But the point that he's making is that Jesus, the God-man, that came down to this earth, that lived this life, that some of you saw die, that man is greater than the angels. And and I love like the language. And so he became superior. Some of yours may say better. Superior is just a a much better word in the CSV. I don't know if you have better in there, I'm sorry. But but it echoes into other places. Look at this, just a couple verses. You You can grab these mentally. Believers in Christ have a better hope. He's gonna say that in 719. Believers in Christ have a better covenant, 7.22 and 8.6. We kind of read that. They have a better sacrifice, 9.23. They have a better possession, 10.34, a better resurrection, amen, for that 11.35, a better blood than Abel's, 12.24. What Jesus did is superior to all of them. The one who magnifies God's nature and manifests his glory 
has purified believers' sin. He's purified all of our sins, and he reigns now at God's right hand. He is superior. And the author here introduces angels, and it's going to become a topic of conversation in our Bible study if you're with him this week. Um, and, and I read this, and a lot of our Bible study leaders just go like, why? Why did the author emphasize Jesus' superior or his superiority over the angels? Like, were the Hebrews at this point assigning some sort of particular significance to the angels? Were they like angel thrones set up and were they worshiping certain angels? When you read all of Hebrews as a whole, especially kind of what happens in two and, and beyond, we, we discovered this really probable answer to the approach here. Hebrews 2.2 2 says this, for if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression or disobedience received a just, just punishment, like you, you understand and you can continue reading what happened there, but, but we begin to get this understanding of, of what they thought and what the Old Testament really loudly screams, where, what the angels did. They're bringing about a message that was spoken to the angels that was really about the law. Acts 7.53, you received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you've not kept it. The angels brought about the law, and we understand. Jewish Christians were formerly focusing on the Old Testament and really focused on the law. And they would go, the angels are the one that brought about the law. Paul in, Gen or in Galatians 3, verse 19, why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the capital S seed to whom the promise was made would come. And so that points you back to the promise to Abraham, the promise to, to David, that their throne would be an everlasting one. And this is the part of it. This is Jesus, the, the seed to whom the promise would made, he comes. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. So in, in highlighting and stressing the son's superiority to the angels, the author is going, Jesus is supreme, but he's not just supreme over angels. He's supreme over the law. He's supreme over whatever mosaic things that you're holding on to. He's supreme to the Sinai covenant. He's supreme to all of those covenants. He's fulfilled all of those things. And so the reference to the angels really just like ties back into the main central theme or one of the central themes of the letter that we should no longer be concerned with the law given by angels. Why? Because the law is inferior. The, the law is just an inferior law. God made a promise to make Abraham's name great in Genesis 12 too. He makes the same promise in 2 Samuel 7, 9 to David that his name was going to be great. The problem was that with that is that Abraham's name was not what God was concerned about. It wasn't like Father Abraham had many sons and it just continues. It wasn't that King David was going to be the one that we worshiped. This is, not, this is not the idea of sonship that God had. This is why this is so important. God is saying, through your lineage, and understand that your sons are important. And so it's going to be son, 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 all the way to this king that is coming. And he's going to satisfy all of this. And it's not going to be Abraham's name that's going to be great. It's the lineage of Abraham that eventually comes alive that's going to be great. And in that, through what Jesus has done, through completing all of these promises that the Old Testament or the new Jewish Christians who function under Old Testament law will begin to understand, they now understand that the inheritance that Jesus just received, he inherits all of that thing because him and his name and the personification of God that he exhibits is more excellent than all of those promises. He, he's greater than all of those things. And so this is what I want to do as we close. And the band is getting ready to come back up. That's your cue. I, I want you to hear this in a different way. And, and this, may, this may be hard for you to hear this. But, but as you begin to 
close your Bible, and put a check at the end of whatever notes you're taking. I want you to bow your head, and I just want you to hear this more so as a prayer. Because these first four verses um, are, are beautiful and, and powerful and challenging, and I think they do something to the way that we think in the same way that it did something to the way that the Jewish Christians in the earlier times of Christianity thought. And so as you bow your head, hear this. This is the prayer the start of this book. God, long ago you spoke to the fathers by the prophets. You spoke at different times and in different ways, but in our days, you speak to us by the Son. God, you appointed Jesus to be heir of all things. You made the universe through him. And he is the radiance of your glory. He is the exact expression of your nature. He sustains me, but he sustains all things by his powerful word. And after making purification for all of our sins, he sits at the right hand of our God on high. He's superior to the angels, just as the name King Jesus that he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is the the culmination of God's revelation. The, The Old Testament scriptures point to him, but they are fulfilled in him. And we see in this introduction that Jesus is a prophet, that Jesus is a priest, that Jesus is our king, and as the prophet, he's the final word of God spoken. He's the priest in whom the final cleansing for our sins has taken place. He's the king who sits at God's right hand, making intercession on our behalf before the Father, reminding him of his blood poured out on the cross for sinners like you and me. The last days have arrived in Jesus. The final word has been spoken. We don't need another revelation. And everyone who puts their faith and trust in what God has revealed through Jesus inherits eternal life. And so we're reminded here that God is, that Jesus is better than the angels, but you need to hear this, some of you tonight, that if if Jesus is greater than the angels, then he's greater than whatever false prophet or little G God you brought into this room with you. Whatever lie that you've been believing, whatever thing that has been whispering in your ear that you should pursue, whatever life that you think you could build for yourself outside of the promises of God is destroyed in what he did. He is greater than the spirit of fear. He is is greater than that false prophet that we call anxiety. He is greater than your doubt. He is greater than your shame. He is greater than the tiny gods of success and money and titles and degrees and positions and spouses and children. He's greater than all of those things. What in your life tonight has taken his place in that? What have you made greater? Because what we see and it's going to continue to echo, and I love that the message can be the same for about 30 weeks, 
is that Jesus is greater than whatever God you've put on your shelf. And he comes to destroy them. And I promise you it's easier if you present them to them just laying them down than to allow him to destroy them. And so tonight, whatever it is, whatever little G God or whatever false prophet you've brought in to hear that Jesus is greater than and you're hearing that, tonight the challenge is just to lay them down. And so for believers in this room and I myself as I contend with this, there's some things that have just gotten in the way of our relationship with Jesus. And we gotta lay those things down. And for unbelievers in this room, everything has gotten in the way of Jesus. And you gotta lift him up. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. And God has predestined works for you to walk in from the foundation of the earth. And that first work is to run to him as Savior. And so in this place tonight, there can be movement all over the room. It could be physically you have to kneel and lay some things down that you've made idols before God that he and his superiority has destroyed. Or maybe for the first time, you just need to run to Jesus. You need to grab a friend and ask them to help you to do that. And you have freedom to do so in this place. And so as we respond to him in a couple songs, you have freedom to come up here. You have freedom to stay in your seat. You can stand up and sing if you want to. You can grab somebody and head out the doors. You can go any way you want to. You have freedom to respond to whatever Jesus is doing in this place. Let me pray for you, and then we'll respond. God, um, you're big, and you're good, and your word echoes loudly. And we thank you that when I say that, I'm, I'm putting Jesus in his right place. Like, Jesus, you're the word. You speak, you sustain, you hold everything together. And in that, you're superior. We thank you for your current location at the right hand of the Father, declaring that you are king. We, we thank you that what's wrapped up in that kingship is that you're a prophet speaking the final word, and it's good. You're the priest that declares that the sacrifice is final for us and we can now run to the Father. So may we accept you for who you are by your spirit. Would you give us a clear picture of Jesus and may we run to that. And anything that's gotten in the way, will we lay that down tonight? And as we think about even the, the Shema, where we go, like, what's our one thing? What are we building our foundation on? And often we think it's gotta be success or a certain title or a certain position. But may it be you tonight. Thank you that you're alive, that you're living, and that you're still moving. And may you move tonight as we respond in a way that gives you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You respond as God leads you to.